Genesis chapter 41. We're continuing this series, of course, in Foundations. And it's just an ongoing, amazing story of God's redemptive plan. And every detail, every aspect of this story is vital to that plan, including, as we noted last week, it's like driving a car and uh, you're going 90 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour and there's a site you want to look at and there's another one and there's another one. You're going by fast. That's much of the book of Genesis. We went by pretty fast, or the Bible does, when it comes to the creation account. And then it slows down at Jacob and and you get out of the car and God wants you to look around and pay attention. But it really slows down when it would come to this man, Joseph. Let's begin, if we would, in verse 46. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls, exactly as God had revealed to him with that dream, right? And he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. The food of the field, which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. Remember, distribution is vital during famine. And so God gave him wisdom, as the Bible tells us, to know that you have it stored up in all of these different cities for distribution. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering or quit numbering, for it was without number. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. And I ask, dear Lord, as we look again tonight at this precious, amazing, inspired, preserved book that you will open our hearts, as Brother Steve prayed a moment ago, Lord, open our hearts that we can hear what the Spirit hath to say and be changed by it. We'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. According to verse 45 of our text, if you just glance at it, you'll notice that Joseph, the son of Jacob, was given a Gentile bride. Once again, as always, this is a picture. It is a picture of our Lord who was also given a Gentile bride. And of course, it's significant to know that the first two of their children are given Hebrew names. So when Joseph says, God's caused me to forget all my father's house in toil, he doesn't mean necessarily forget who I am, forget who they are, forget the pain and the heartache and the betrayal. So Manasseh means to forget. Ephraim means fruitful. My pastor called them amnesia and ambrosia. And of course, you know what? Just three months ago, we preached a Sunday morning message on these two boys called forget and be fruitful. So we're not going to repeat those specific lessons. We are, however, going to move the story forward, as the Bible does. And we'll begin in verse 50. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of, of On, bare unto him. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. As an amazing work of mercy and grace, both Joseph and his Gentile bride have moved from abject poverty, in his case poverty and jail, from obscurity to the glory of the Egyptian palace. Joseph's wife, who was in complete spiritual darkness, was from a very poor region of Egypt called An. And you know, we can only speculate as to how wonderfully Joseph must have introduced her to the one true God. 
She went from being a nobody girl in spiritual darkness to a princess basking in the palace and the light of truth. All this redemptive story that we've been studying for these many, many weeks, even months, all of this plan that God has laid out in his word from the very beginning of Genesis to chapter, chapter 1, 2, and 3, she's now in it. She's a part of it, just like you are. Disney cannot make fiction any sweeter than this. And sure enough, as a type of the bride, this reminds us that we too, by virtue of Christ, have been saved from darkness and obscurity until one day we will live in the palace with the bridegroom himself. Verse 53, would you look at it? And the seven years of plenteousness that was in the land of Egypt were ended. And the seven years of dearth or famine began to come according as Joseph had said. And the dearth was in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, Go unto Joseph, what he saith to you, do. Can you imagine? This is the guy that was in jail. Had nothing. In fact, he wasn't just in jail, he was on death row. And the famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians, and the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all the countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn because that the famine was so sore in all the lands. In other words, as we all know here from Economics 101, there may have been a famine in the world, as the Bible says, but Joseph is, during the famine, is increasing Egypt's wealth by leaps and bounds. It says in verse 56, he sold to the Egyptians. It says in verse 57 that other countries came to buy corn or grain from him as well. That, beloved, shows amazing foresight, amazing wisdom on Joseph's part that came from God. This was not a giveaway. This was not some sort of an entitlement. Granted, it wasn't price gouging. As a matter of fact, the law of Moses would go on later to to forbid the taking advantage of the poor. But the Bible is perfectly consistent concerning the principles of sowing and reaping. If you don't sow, you don't reap. Paul said, if you don't work, neither should a man eat. I know it's not acceptable in our progressive society today, but just unloading tons of goods and services on able-bodied people is not helpful, nor is it truly compassionate. Now, that doesn't absolve us individually of being the good Samaritan where you see an individual or a family in need give them your time if you can give them some resources that ought to be used to bless people as God allows you to do so however as you see in this story and throughout the Bible from this foundational example right here as say a national policy this is compassion by proxy when you just give stuff away that you took from someone else if you forgive, this is very popular right now, forgiving countries their debts, um, that we loan billions and trillions of dollars to them. If you forgive $50 billion of debt that India owes America, for example, what you've really done is raise the indebtedness of American taxpayers by $50 billion. And American taxpayers don't have tens of millions of dollars sitting around like celebrities and billionaires who are promoting these kinds of policies. Bill Gates wants the U.S. to forgive trillions of dollars of debt. Well, when Bill Gates gives all of his money away, 
And when he's willing to, to live a, the same level as a middle-class American taxpayer who provided for all of those loans all over the world, then I'll be slightly impressed with Mr. Gates. Until then, he's just spending other people's money. And I have no idea how you got me on that. Sorry about that. <laughs> all right, it's your fault. Chapter 42, verse 1. It says, Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, why do you look one upon another? That sounds like a dad, right? Why are you standing around looking at each other? You're just looking at each other. My question is this, Jacob, how in the world does a scene suddenly switch from the palace of Pharaoh way over here to a man and his family, a man named Jacob? Jacob, you understand, is in, in a whole other world from the events of chapter 41. And yet, from heaven's perspective, he and Joseph are exactly where God said and where God wanted them to be. Look at verse 2. And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt to get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. This is a severe famine. Verse 3, and Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. Hmm. You know, it's sort of, if you think about it, just stop there for a moment. It looks like the chickens might be coming home to roost. They're going to go down to Egypt? And they're going to buy corn from Egypt? They're going to buy grain from, from Egypt? Little do they know who's in charge of that very grain. You know, there are 13 recorded famines in the Bible. This one is going to be used by God to drive Israel to Joseph. In the Great Tribulation, it will drive Israel to Christ himself. It's not surprising at all that Joseph's dealings with his brethren mirrors, if you will, the Lord, the Lord Jesus' dealings with the nation of Israel. Three phases. You'll notice in a moment of his dealings with his brothers. The mystery phase, the brothers are clueless, the majesty phase Joseph reveals himself and his glory to the brethren and then the ministry phase where Joseph reaches out and represents their interests and brings them to the best part of the land and of course I'm getting ahead of myself a little so look at verse 3 again and Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt but Benjamin Joseph's brother Jacob sent not with his brethren for he said lest peradventure mischief follow him. By the way, what's the significance of Benjamin as opposed to all of the other brothers? Well, this is the other, only other son of Rachel. That means that this is Joseph's full brother, full-blooded brother, unlike the others. That's significant. Verse 5, and the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came. In other words, the whole world's coming. It's nothing different. For the famine was in the land of Canaan, and Joseph was the governor over the land, and it was... And he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves. Remember the dream? This is not the fulfillment of the dream. It's going to remind him of the fulfillment. And bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. I think it's obvious why Joseph recognized these people, as you'll see in a moment. Let me, let's read it and you'll see what I'm saying. Verse 7 says, And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, 
and spake roughly unto them. Can you imagine that? I mean, I'm not sure exactly how that was exhibited, but I've seen people speak roughly to others. Hey, what are you doing here? Who do you think you are? You know, he spake roughly to them on purpose. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. Again, why is it obvious that he recognizes them and they don't recognize him? Well, for one thing, they thought he's dead or a slave. Secondly, Joseph was 17 the last time they saw him. Now he's 37. They, on the other hand, were much older than he at the time of that separation, so they wouldn't have changed as much. But also, on their part, you have 10 Hebrews dressing and acting exactly how Joseph remembered them. But he looks and appears nothing like they remembered him. He even speaks through an interpreter. And then it's also likely that Joseph is, has been watching for them, waiting for them to come. Because there have been people from all over the world, delegations coming to get their grain, and Joseph remembers the potential of his dream. Verse 9, And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, and said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said unto him, Nay, my Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. Now look, maybe you're thinking, and maybe you read this story before, and you're thinking, Pastor, why is he speaking so roughly to them? Why in the world, why these accusations that he knows are not true? Well, because, as you're going to see in a moment, clearly, I think, he's testing them. So far, they have admitted that they're all the sons of one man, but they haven't mentioned Joseph yet. Not even by implication. Look at verse 12. He said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land, ye are come. Same accusation, seeing if he'll get more information out of them. Sure enough, he does. Verse 13, And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Well, there's the mention of Joseph, not by name, certainly not in detail. If you think about it, after all, folks, for a long time, they have tried to force the details of Joseph out of their minds, out of their guilty conscience, because how are they going to sleep at night? But by implication, they do mention Joseph finally, and Joseph's standing there. He knows. He knows everything. He has no intention of letting them get off this easily. Verse 14, And Joseph said unto them, That is it that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. Hereby ye shall be proved. The word means tested. By the life of Pharaoh ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved. Whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. And he put them all together into ward three days. Three days? Wait a minute. Three days in prison? Pastor, why? Why doesn't Joseph just spill the beans? And why doesn't he just blurt it out? Fellas, it's me. I'm your brother and God hath made me forget all my toll and all my father's house. Come on, let's have a group hug. Right? And let's just all get together and 
All this is past. It's all water under the bridge. He could have done that. But I remind you of what it said, we noticed in our last study. Joseph has the Spirit of God in him. Joseph has the wisdom of God. And the truth is, these men needed. I remind you that Joseph was 12 years, not days, waiting. These men needed three days in jail to ponder the very thing that this strange Egyptian has put before them. Namely, where is the other brother? Look at verse 18. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. By the way, that phrase, you may remember Abraham and Abimelech. That little expression is, a, is an Old Testament expression that's almost equivalent to saying, I'm born again. I'm a child of God. For, that's an Old Testament uh, follower of Jehovah expression. I fear God, he says. Verse 19, if ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye carry corn for the famine of your houses. But bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified. And ye shall not die. And they did so. And they said one to another. Now, let me stop here for a minute. They're still there. Joseph's still there. And they're talking to each other in their native tongue. They don't think Joseph understands this native tongue, because he's using an interpreter. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. Now you see what he's doing? Now you see the wisdom of God in him? I mean, believe me, brother, beloved, his heart is bleeding for his brethren. Verse 24, and he turned himself about from them and wept. Do you know why Joseph couldn't hold it in anymore? Do you know why the Bible says he had to turn away from them and start weeping? Think about this scene. Here they are talking in his mother tongue. In his language, who knows how long since he's heard it. Assuming that this Egyptian could not understand them. And just before Joseph weeps, he hears Joseph, hears Reuben say what? Didn't I tell you that we shouldn't kill the child? Didn't I tell you to show mercy? Joseph never knew that detail until now. He never knew about Reuben, and it must have been emotional to hear, first of all, that he pleaded on his behalf, and secondly, that they didn't listen to those pleas. That they just went ahead and sold him into slavery anyway. In any case, Joseph knows that in God's dream, all 11 brothers are going to bow down. And here there's only 10. This is not yet the fulfilling of that dream. So to motivate them to action, he keeps himself secret. Again, he wants to. You'll see this. You'll see it. He wants to reveal himself to them. He wants to embrace them and forgive them. But he's too wise to do it now. He knows that they are not yet ready. He himself may not be yet ready to see him in his 
glory for who he was and who he now is. He knows they need to deal with their sin first. So then he takes from among them Simeon. Remember Simeon? He was the meanest. He was the one who didn't care if Jacob heard the bad news about Joseph being dead and so on. He takes Simeon, puts him in jail, and sends them all away. Verse 24, And he turned himself from them and wept and returned to them again, and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. That's the money that they were supposed to use to pay for the corn. Verse 26, and they laid their asses with the corn and departed thence. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the end, he espied or he saw his money. For behold, it was in the sack's mouth. Off they go to Canaan. Their money bags are full. Their bags of grain are stuffed. But their mind is full of troubling thoughts. And to add to those troubling thoughts... Joseph sort of puts in this, I think it's a master stroke. Verse 28, he says to his brethren, my money is restored. And lo, it is even in my sack and their hearts, their heart failed them. And they were afraid. Saying one to another, what is this that, look at this, God hath done unto us. They don't see this money as a blessing. They're not saying, Lotto, look what we won. This is awesome. We got our grain. We got our money. No, they're afraid, the Bible says. The same boys who loved money, who sold Joseph for cash so long before, needed to be taught that the love of money is the root of all evil. This is showing growth. This is showing that remorse is working on their hearts, but not yet repentance. Look at verse 29. And they came unto Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell unto them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land, whoever that guy is, spake roughly to us and took us for spies in the country. And from verse 31 all the way through verse 35, they explain detail by detail exactly what happened with this man in Egypt who's a lord over all the land. Notice verse 36. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. Joseph is not. Remember they told him he died. A wild animal got him. They brought that coat of many colors with blood all over it. And Simeon is not. He's back in Egypt. And ye will take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. And he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. Wow. Those words must have echoed in the ears of Joseph's brothers. How many years Jacob has assumed that his beloved son is dead because they told him. You can see how God, through Joseph, is working on these boys' hearts. It reminds me, quite frankly, of how the Lord Jesus dealt with the woman at the well. When Jesus witnessed to different people, he did 
He used different patterns of witnessing to them because he knew where they were. The rich young ruler, he knew exactly what that rich young ruler needed to hear. It was not exactly what the woman at the well needed to hear. Something else you can see. You can see how prepared this man Joseph is for this moment in his life. In fact, you know what? I used to think this. I used to think that the sufferings, the injustices of Joseph at the hands of his brothers and then Potiphar's wife and his master and the butler and the baker, I used to think that those were the greatest tests of Joseph's life. But when you think about it, this is his greatest test. This is a tough one. Before him are his traitorous brothers. They are defenseless and they are destitute. And here is Joseph unlimited in his power over them now. So what's he do? What do most people do with their advantage over others when those other people have wronged them? What have you done? What have I done? When the tables were turned. Usually people do one of two things. They either abuse that power by exacting revenge. Or two, they also abuse that power by just ignoring them and writing them off. But not Joseph. Joseph is going to use his power to help restore and to repair his brothers. Folks, you talk about passing the test. Joseph takes the role of the repairer of the breach. Remember Isaiah's prophecy? It mentions this one singular powerful virtue. God said, thou shalt be called, this is a wonderful promise, the repairer of the breach. I taught the high schoolers, I teach high school, Sunday school, you know, that text. And one of the teenagers said, Pastor, after what it was over, please, would you please teach that? in the main service in the auditorium for someone, I want to hear it. They didn't say who. Probably their parents. So I said, okay, Ansley, I'll do it. I'm just kidding. It wasn't Ansley, it was Ayla. I'm just kidding. (coughs) What's interesting is that in Isaiah, it says, show to the house of Jacob, "Thou thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, the children of God. Now think about that. The same Jesus who, as we noted Sunday morning, said, I came not to send peace but a sword, wants us to be peacemakers. As you know, a repair of the breach, this is a breach. That's a breach. Someone comes along and they see a a breach, two people maybe, and it's a tear, a weak spot in a relationship. And some people, in Joseph's position especially, will come along and just add to the breach. They have the power to do it. They have the means. They, in their minds, have the motivation because, after all, these people did me wrong or one of them I don't like. And so that's what happens. People come along, they see a breach, and they take sides. I'm on this side. I'm on this side. Whichever side it is, it's still going to make the breach worse, sometimes much worse. Joseph was a man who saw a breach that was created by them, his own brothers. He uses his power 
And with great wisdom from God, he uses his influence to repair and restore what was lost. So that in every way, Joseph is passing this test. I wonder if we pass that test. Do we long to see two of God's children who are at odds restored? Because the father of both of them from up there is looking down. He wants to see them restored. So do we long to see that happen? Do we try to therefore repair the breach? Or do we make the breach greater? Do we long to see a believer who is away from God because of a sin or backsliding or whatever, someone away from God, do we long to see them come back and restored to Christ? Is that like our heart's desire? Or do we simply make it a greater breach by slandering and through division and pride on our parts. These boys conspired against Joseph out of their envy and out of their hate. They conspired. Joseph is conspiring, and this is a conspiracy, but he is conspiring for his brothers out of love and out of grace. That grace is about to be elevated to a higher degree in what Joseph does next. Let's look at one example of this very quickly. Chapter 43, verse 1. And the famine was sore in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt. Their father said unto them, Go again, and buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto them, saying, The man, the man, did solemnly protest unto us, saying, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, Benjamin... We will not go down. For the man said unto us, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. In other words, Judah says, Father, we can't go back. We can't go back with Benjamin because we're all going to die, be executed if we do. And then he says this, verse 8. And Judah said unto Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety, I will be insurance for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, <clears throat> then let me bear the blame. He says, forever. Now, folks, that is not anything like the Judah of chapter 37 or 38. That's not the same Judah we read about earlier. And that's not all. Verse 11, and their father Israel said unto them, if it must be so now, do this, take of the best fruits of the land, your vessels, and carry down the man a present, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, probably all that they had. This is such a Middle Eastern thing, the hospitality. And take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand, peradventure it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again unto the man. Jacob's probably weeping at this point. And God Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your older brother and Benjamin if I be bereaved of my children. I am bereaved. What pathos in those words and in this moment. Verse 16, And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home, 
and slay and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. Now go down to verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand under the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom ye spake? Is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant, thy father, is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom ye spake unto me? And he said, God, be gracious unto thee, my son. He's not speaking rough now. He doesn't have to speak rough. He knows exactly what God's doing in these boys' lives. And Joseph, verse 30, made haste, made haste. He rushed, he rushed out for his bowels. His heart did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep. And he entered into his chamber, and he wept there, and he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, set on bread. Now, folks, follow this carefully. <clears throat> you would think that now, after all of this, Joseph would go ahead and just spill the beans. I mean, reveal himself to his brothers and get it over with. Matter of fact, I know of a preacher who once rebuked Joseph for, quote, wasting his time. Sat there and listened to it and I thought, what? He is not wasting his time. He's not ready yet to reveal himself to them because they're not ready. Their hearts have not yet repented, but they're about to. Verse 33, And they sat before him, the firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at another. Why they marvel? Because Joseph had his steward put them from the youngest to the eldest. Well, how'd that strange guy in Egypt know? Yeah, they marveled. They're not ready yet. Their heart has not yet repented, but know this, repented, but know this carefully. Verse chapter 44. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill them in sacks with food as much as they can carry. And put every man's money in his sack's mouth. And put my cup, the silver cup. You know, that's like the, that's like the white Stanley that everybody has to have, <laughs> that nobody has. I guess everybody has it now. I mean, this, this was going to be so obvious that somebody stole this. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest. We know who that is. And his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Now, wait a minute. Another test? Come on. Another setup? Why? Verse 4. And when they were gone out of the city, not yet far off, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have you rewarded evil for good? Oh, boy. Verse 6, he overtook them, and he spake unto them these same words. And they said unto him, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? God forbid that thy servants should do according to this thing. Behold, the money which we found in our sacks and mouths we brought again to thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we will also be my Lord's bondmen. They don't believe it. They said, nobody stole your cup. And if you find it, whoever sack you find in, let that, let that brother of mine die. Well, we know who has it. Verse 11. 
Then they speedily took down every man his sack to the ground and opened every man his sack. And he searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And Judah, verse 14, and Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there. And they fell before him on the ground. Boy, talk about failure. And Joseph said unto them, what deed is this that ye have done? Why ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine? And Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak, or how shall we clear ourselves? God, here it is, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, with whom the cup is found. We're almost done. Verse 30. Now, therefore, when I come to thy servant, my, thy, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. In other words, he's going to die when he finds out Benjamin's gone. It shall come to pass, and when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. This is what they've already done. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad a bondman to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brethren, for how shall I go up to my father? And the lad be not with me. Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. Hold it. Wait a minute. How can this be the same Judah? How can this be the same man who didn't care about his father's heartbreak back in chapter 37 when they lied about Joseph being killed? This is the same Judah who suggested that Joseph, he was the one who said, let's sell him into slavery. Is it possible that this Judah was now willing to be a slave to save a son of Rachel and spare his father grief? I'm telling you again, this is growth that can only come with repentance and confession. It is no accident that the very next verse says this. Chapter 45, verse 1. We'll close. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. Then he couldn't. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me, all of his servants, all the Egyptians. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. Beloved, Joseph wasn't wasting his time, nor was he wasting their time. He was using wisdom and love in dealing with his brothers exactly how our Lord has used wisdom and love in dealing with us. Remember that amazing text in Romans eleven twenty two: Behold the goodness and severity of God. Both the goodness and the severity of God. God uses both of those to bring us closer to him. Proverbs 16, 6 says, By truth and mercy, iniquity is purged. Hey, we want iniquity purged, right? We want iniquity purged in our lives, in our children's lives. Well, you have to do it by truth and mercy. Truth without mercy is cruelty. Mercy without truth is compromise. Truth plus mercy is compassion. And of some have compassion, making a difference. Let me read to you what George Williams said about this scene, and we'll pray. 
Joseph acted so as to bring their sin to remembrance, to make them confess it with their own lips. His detention of Simeon and afterwards of Benjamin was skillfully designed so as to find out if they were still indifferent to the cries of a captive brother and the tears of a bereaved father. His plan succeeded admirably. His sternness and his kindness both conspired to disquiet them, and his goodness helped to lead them to repentance. Remember what Paul said? The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Well, you first have to see the goodness of God. And so it is with our Lord's dealings with us. He doeth all things well. With blessings, with burdens, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And yes, through all of this, as our study has reminded us every week, God is on his throne. This worldwide famine, Joseph's unjust treatments at the Potiphar's house, in the jail, with the butler and the baker, not for one moment, with, with the macro or the micro, with the worldwide famine or the little individual things in family matters, was El Shaddai not involved or not working. And for 2024, you know what I think? I think we can trust a God like this with all of our lives. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for reminding us tonight that these things were written for our learning, for our admonition. And I pray, Father, we will be admonished. Thank you for the example of a young man named Joseph who never got bitter but only got better because he trusted you. May we trust you this year, knowing that you're on your throne. You've said in your word, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Help us to be peacemakers and repairers of the breach. And in so doing, be more like Christ. We'll praise you for the fruit that remains because of it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.